James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would grant us wisdom and understanding of your word, and we pray that you would help us to be people who delight in our inner being in the word of God. And we pray that you would, through the word of God, by means of the word of God, make us more and more to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask that you would grow us in holiness and in every grace that we might glorify him, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what if I told you this morning, I am the most intelligent person who has ever lived? Of course, you'll say, well, that's a very nice idea, and I certainly hope that that may be true of you, but on the other hand, I want to see some evidence. And what you can say something about yourself, but But let's see the fruit born out of what you suggested or what you believe in your inner person. What if I told you that I I am a gourmet chef and all you have to do is trust me, I'll make the meal, uh, the upcoming meal for your future wedding or the the meal that you have for your future, your friends coming into your home, a very important client dinner dinner. Well, you're going to want to see in some way a some evidence of what I suggest with my mouth. What if I told you that I can work on a vehicle and I can fix anything? Well, you might say, well, are you familiar with my particular vehicle? Do you have the ability to work on a Volkswagen? And do you really understand the inner workings of a Buick, even if it's slow or not as fast as we'd like it to be? Uh, And you want just a little bit of evidence. And, well, that's a right and an appropriate thing. James is telling us this morning that we can say things with our mouths, 
We can make a suggestion. We can, we can with great authority in our voice say, I am a Christian. And that's a great thing. That's a good thing. All right, well now let's look for the fruit of the truthfulness of that statement. And that's a right and good thing to do in follow-up. When someone comes to Grace Presbyterian Church and eventually comes to the position that we want to join this church because the beliefs expressed there are our beliefs, and we're learning and growing there, and we want to use our gifts in service to Jesus Christ and to join in a public profession with a local body, you meet with the session. And the session simply asks some very basic gospel questions to see whether or not the profession of faith is married to a life of obedience and that, 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 that works accompany that faith. So we're looking for a public profession, but also the evidence that that profession is real. We do that with our mechanics, don't we? You go to a doctor's. Don't you expect that the doctor, I've been reading a couple of articles over the last couple of years where people have actually practiced in Florida and Massachusetts, they have actually practiced gynecology, a heart a surgeon, they've practiced medicine without any credentials of any kind. It's bizarre. It's incredible that such a person could practice such uh, a, an intricate science over a period of time, but some of them, I, I believe one of them that had practiced for 15 years, 17 years, had been writing prescriptions, had no accreditation as a doctor at all. Don't you want, when you go to see a doctor, to know that this doctor has the skills and the ability that go along with their profession or the, the signage on the door that they are in fact Medical doctors who know their way around the human body. Well, that's what we want. We want truthfulness. We want truthfulness in the claims that we observe. And so that's what this is. James is saying uh, he's approaching the idea of faith from the perspective of one who is saying, look, faith, it's very easy to simply say, yes, I have faith in Jesus. But then also... He suggests, he makes clear this morning, not with a suggestion, that faith is something that must bear fruit to be held to be genuine. James sets a balance before us this morning. And he clarifies repeatedly in this passage that faith without works is dead. Now this flies in the face of, of Romans chapter 3, verse 28, uh, I believe, where Paul affirms uh, a very explicit statement concerning faith and, 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 and justification by works. And he says this in uh, chapter 3, verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works and not, or, or apart from works of the law. He's also said in Romans 4, 5, However, to the man who does not work but who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Is Paul in conflict with James? That's the question. And we want to understand what James is saying here, so let's carefully examine the text. I, I, I plan to be a little bit more methodical than usual as we examine what Paul say, or James says in verses 14 through 26. It's a large section. James is going to begin by asking a very scary question. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? 
Can that faith save him? Now, he does not say, he does not ask the question, can faith save? That's what the question is that the Apostle Paul took up. And the Apostle Paul clarifies, yes, faith, saving faith, true faith, justifying faith, saves a person who expresses faith in Jesus Christ. But James asks a different question this morning. Here is someone, he, he suggests, here is this hypothetical person. Here is a person who, has, who, says, <coughs> who says that he has faith, but he has no evidence that that faith is real, no accompanying works, no newness of life, no, no pattern beginning or growing pattern of obedience. He says, can that specific faith, can that faith that he's just outlined, can that faith save him? It's an important understanding. Well, James asks that question, and it's a question that we ought to take seriously. Can that faith that that man expresses save him? And James wants to bring us into careful thought and exegesis this morning. We know that faith is the primary hallmark of the Christian life, faith, faith and trust in Jesus. He's not declaring that faith will not save an individual, but he's asking if that faith, that kind of faith, can save a person. Now, he's speaking to people that we, we understand, we know according to chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith. He's, he's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. He's writing to people who have faith, who hold, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And, and he's speaking about genuine faith, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, he outlines there very clearly, don't hold your faith in such a way that does not bear fruit. And he outlines already in the rest of this chapter, already up to this point in verse 14, what that fruit may look like. Not showing favoritism to a rich man, but rather having a regard for the poor. Not looking with favoritism at any person. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. Showing love to the brethren. Not committing murder, but also not committing adultery. Speaking and acting as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, the liberty that we enjoy, the freedom that we enjoy as sons and daughters of the living God. So he's addressing my brethren who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's addressing Christians. And he's addressing Christians with a hypothetical person who expresses, I have faith in Jesus. And yet, <clears throat> he has no accompanying works. So he's speaking to people, and he's expressing their need of obedience, and he's lifting up the hypothetical example of a person who says that he has faith in Jesus, but who has no intention of obeying, no intention of responding to the things which James has said in the earlier verses, verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> For James, faith is God's foundational gift. He says this in verse 5 of chapter 2. It's a common mark of all Christians, as he outlines in verse 1. It's the continuing reality of the Christian life as outlined in chapter in ver, chapter 2, verse 22. So faith is significant in the life of the believer. It's, it's a common mark of all. It, it bears fruit. It's, 
we see that James's perspective on faith is quite clearly excellent. It's, agreement, it's in agreement with the rest of the word of God. But why does he give us this question at the beginning? Can that faith save him? We'll glean something of an understanding of why he asks that as we go further into this text. There are a number of links between this portion and the previous week, such that we've already outlined some of them. But the law is to have a significant role in the life of the believer in verses 8 through 13. It should govern our behavior. We we referred to three uses of the law. The, The law which convicts us of our sin, the law which portrays the way to Christ. It it brings us to Christ and shows us the way. The law reveals God. And further, the law and the life of a believer is such that it now becomes the roadmap for a life of holiness and a pursuit of Christ. James tells us about the emphasis that the law must have in the life of a believer, but he wound up that section in speaking, verse 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What will the Christian's ultimate security be in the day of judgment? Is it that we've done all the right things, that we've said all the right things, that we've, we've obeyed the law perfectly? No, but rather that our profession of faith in Christ is real such that it bears fruit, and that fruit can be observed. And the vitality of of a genuine saving faith is seen in us, such that our faith is genuine. Our trust in Christ is real. We've been justified by faith in Christ. So James begins to tell us, this really is the function of verses 14 through 26, what genuine faith looks like. We live in a generation where a lot of people say that they have faith in Christ. And we, we say it on social media. People, people readily come out and say, oh, yes, I'm a believer. I regularly read accounts. I love to read accounts from Hollywood stars and starlets and musicians and other such people who say that they have faith in Christ. I put on my Facebook this week something from the lead singer of Skillet who expresses what seems to be a genuine faith in Christ. I, I was thrilled. He, he, he gladdened my heart with what he said about modern worship and the kind of worship that we should seek, word-centered worship, the worship that, that, uh, that glorifies God. I, I, I was thrilled to read such a thing. I read lots of other accounts, too, from people that say, oh, yes, well, I'm a Christian. And then their lives seem to explicitly contradict the things that they've said. It happens within the church, too, doesn't it? How many pastors have we seen on the public news at night who have said for many, many years that they love the Lord Jesus, they've preached the gospel countless times, and yet secretly they've been living a life of sin in contradiction to their public testimony. And we find that everything that they said is, is now suspect. It's in question. They're hypocrites. They're filled with hypocrisies of every kind. And the apostle and James, the apostle, wants us to understand that faith, faith must be genuine. A faith that saves must be true and real. The faith that saves is 
the faith, we are justified by grace through faith alone. But but the faith that justifies is never alone. It's never without the accompanying work of God in the life of a believer. It always exemplifies, always clarifies that this, that there is true and lasting faith that can never be found alone by itself, but will always be found matched with solid and good, God-pleasing works. Because it is God who is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. Can we be sure this morning that our faith is a saving faith? Many people say, I believe or I have faith in God. I'm spiritual. But how many of them really are only saying so with wishful thinking? Not everyone, Jesus said, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, the connection between practicing lawlessness and, and an imagined profession of faith. Their profession of faith is matched not with a life of principled obedience, but rather with lawlessness. No regard whatsoever for the character of God. No indication that the spirit of the living Savior is present within us. James is very practical. <clears throat> In order to help us to arrive at a correct definition of faith, James introduces four illustrations. Four illustrations within our present text. The brother or sister without clothing and food, the believing demons, Abraham, the friend of God, and Rahab who welcomes Joshua's spies. All four. All four, we'll look at them briefly. Before we begin to examine these four illustrations, there's some very important observations to make concerning those four illustrations. Notice each illustrative section ends with a, a summary statement of what James wants us to learn. He'll do this again and again. Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Verse 20, similarly, after another illustration, but you're willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Again in verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Each illustration has a purpose in displaying something clearly. He summarizes again in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. These are his summary statements. Also very importantly, the first two illustrations are negative. What faith is not. Faith is not looking at someone who is in need and saying, be warmed. Look, look, you, you're, you're cold. Go get warm. You're hungry. Look, go get something to eat. And has no regard for the actual need. And even though we have the resources to meet that need, we don't do it or give it. That's a negative illustration. Similarly with the demons who say we they come to a conclusion that God is true, that God is that Jesus Christ, his son, has come to save, that there is life in Christ, that all who believe are saved. They know these things. They know them more certainly than you and I do. And they shudder over the state of their own souls and over the power of God. And yet they're not believers. They are not saved. 
It's a negative illustration in that sense. The first and the last illustrations deal with the manward evidence of true faith. Hungry people clothed and fed. Endangered spies are received. Well, the middle two deal with the Godward evidence of true faith. Abraham coming, having peace with God, not fear, and a life of obedience to God's will, versus the faith or the the understanding, the true understanding of demons. So let's look at these illustrations. The opening scene of verse 14 sets up this four-step definition of saving faith and four illustration steps of saving faith. And Imagine someone who says, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a believer. When I went to Mississippi, I went to seminary, and I remember getting in the car in the first week that I was down there with a man who professed to be an elder in the local church of which I had just joined. And we get into the car, and all of a sudden, his language changed from what it was in the building. All of a sudden, he began to use swear words, and, and he described the, the church secretary with such vivid language that language that I'd heard before, but, but coming from worldly person's lips, not from an elder, ever. And he used language that was incredibly descriptive, and vile, worldly language. And immediately I thought, is this man a Christian? Is this man genuinely a Christian? I sat in the same session and I heard an account from a man who was a candidate to become an elder in that church. And he was asked a very simple question. Can you explain how you came to faith in Christ? Very simple question. All he could say in the end was that his father had been a member of that church for many, many years, that he had grown, he himself had grown up in that church. He said nothing about Jesus. He said nothing about faith. He said nothing about the word of God, trust and hope, justification, sins, the forgiveness of sins and pardon. None of it. Just simply claimed a a genealogical connection to the church. And we would do right to question in that moment. Thankfully, the pastor of that church questioned immediately afterwards when he went out of the room. Brothers, did we hear anything about faith? Did we hear anything about faith bearing fruit in a genuine confession or profession of faith in Christ? There was nothing. Well, here's someone who says, well, I'm saved. Similarly, I'm saved. And yet... How do we know this person is truly saved? Clearly, someone who knows him makes an observation, and he doesn't agree with what this person says. He has no accompanying works. And so James is suggesting here is this person. We all know this person. They say that they have faith in Christ. And we say, well, I know that person. They're they're not saved. I think to some degree all of us know people like that. I have a dear person that I know who's in my life. He's not He has no family connection to me, but it's someone that I know. And I've borne witness on my street. I've shared the gospel. I've I've invited people into our home. I've prayed over them. I've I've preached the gospel at their funerals. And one person in particular has said to me, you know, I'm, I'm a believer. Privately, very quietly, I'm a believer too. I believe in Jesus. I said, 
really? And I was thrilled the first time this person shared this with me. And yet now I've known that person for 20 years. That person has never, ever, ever gone to church. That person, as far as I know, does not read his Bible. That person, I don't believe, prays. I don't believe that person has ever spoken about Christ in a meaningful way in our conversations. But rather, this language is pretty worldly. He approaches life from a completely worldly perspective. As much about his life and the way that he interacts with other people and his wife that would contradict utterly any idea that this person genuinely has saving faith in Christ. And that's the kind of person that James is speaking about here this morning. There are many who will say to Jesus on the last day, Lord, Lord, I did good things in your name. And Jesus will say, "I depart from me, I never knew you. He never knew them intimately and well. He never knew them in the sense that he walked with them in fellowship. He never knew them in the sense of love and covenantal obligation. James is offering for us a a definition of what true faith is. And true faith abounds in some, some clarification in the conduct of one's life that affirms what we express with our lips. James expects our answer to be in, as he asks that question, can that faith save him? And he expects us to say rhetorically, no, it it does not. It cannot. That's not a saving faith. James knows that we believe in salvation by faith alone through grace alone, but he wants us to know that in this statement, faith alone, he wants us to know what that faith alone really means. That in in the transaction of justification, of our being justified by God through faith, that we receive, that, that we believe and we receive the benefits of Christ through believing in him. And in receiving the benefits of life in Christ through faith in him, we are transformed in the inner person. In other words, if we are genuinely and truly saved, we have been born again to a new and living hope. All of a sudden, our predilections and our prejudices and the way in which we think about life and the way we approach decisions, the way that we pray, the the way that we get up in the morning and eat our meals, it all changes. Because now we have a different reason for the hope of approaching a new day. We have a different operative law present within ourselves. Now we no longer live for self, but for him who gave himself for us. So you may say, well, I have faith in Christ. Well, it's an appropriate thing for you to go back and look at your life and say, is there anything in my life that demonstrates that, yes, the power of God is at work in me, that I have truly been converted, my heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh, and that the Spirit of God now lives within me. I have been bought with a price. And I now am a doulos, a slave, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does our Do our lives in any way evidence that fact? Is our faith genuine? Can that faith that says, I express things with my mouth, but there is no activity whatsoever, no, redempt, no, no observable redemptive activity of God, 
and no matching, corresponding newness of life to go with it. Can that faith save him? The answer is no. It's an inevitable no. Well, James moves on to the next. And there's one that deals with mankind, and that is the, the armchair philanthropist who, who, who seems, we pass from that to Rahab, the armchair philanthropist who says to the person, you're in need, you're, you're, you're cold, go and be warmed in some way. In fact, there's a good place down in the center of Springfield, uh, just go there and they'll help you, they'll warm you, they'll give you food without offering to say, look, I'll take you. I'll take you to the warming place. I'll take you to the Springfield Rescue Mission. Let me go into my house and take out of my stores and give you a sandwich, bring you a coal, a warm cup of coffee. Come and be warmed. Let me help you. Let me give you a ride. Let me at the very least pray for your condition and offer some form of help. Rahab went further than that. Rahab was not a an armchair philanthropist like that person in the first illustration. Rahab, you remember this story, she, she helped the spies. The spies were spying out the land and they were running away from the king's men who knew that they were there. They were spies spying out the land. And Rahab said, look, come here. Come in here and I'll give you, I'll give you shelter. And she shelters them. She hides them. And, and she even says, uh, the spies say to her in return, put a cord of scarlet outside your window, and when we destroy this city, God will save you. And she was saved, and she joined Israel from that point forward. She was redeemed. She, was, she, was, she is recounted in some of the lists in Scripture that clarify this woman believed and was justified by faith. And, 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 and that justifying faith is observed in the way in which she gave herself and her resources over to God. She didn't just say to the spies, go and I hope they don't find you. She didn't do that. Come here, I'll hide you. There's a commitment there, is there not? There is a, a commitment of saving faith there. By hiding the spies, she was fundamentally saying, I believe in the God that you bring with you into my into this territory, into my, into my life, into this world. The God that serves, that, that you serve, is the God that I believe in. I believe in his vitality and power. I'm going to serve that God with the entirety of my life, even giving my resources over and being willing to surrender my life to him. See, because if she was caught, she would die. She puts all of her life under contribution, her house, her resources, her ingenuity, her life, her, her family. There were others who lived in her household. And James is saying what, 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 what Barnes says in his commentary. There is as much necessity that faith and work should be united to constitute true religion as there is that body and soul should be united to constitute a living man. If you are body and soul as a human being, well, faith and works must must show themselves to be very close friends, connected, as it were. Yes, you are justified and saved by grace through faith. Faith is the instrument by which we are justified before God. But the faith that saves is never without the accompanying life 
of a person who has been changed from the inside out by the Spirit of God and who now is walking in a way in which pleases God. If faith is alive, at the very least, when we hear of the need of another human being, especially those of the household of faith, should our faith, if it is genuine, not respond, should we not at least pray fervently? At least we'll, we'll, we, we, we can pressure uh, to provide uh, those who, are in, 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 who have resources to provide for the needs of these people this need that we are now aware of. We should be relentless in our in some way, providing for the needs of those who are clearly in need and of the household of faith. It goes beyond just money, though. There needs to be all around us a a provision within ourselves to go beyond, to give ourselves, to, to approach the resources that we have and the wealth that we possess in such a way that says, God gave it all to me. And it is all subject to his will and his use. If God sees a need for it and calls forth a need for the resources he has given to me, I I freely give it to him because he has given me his beloved son. What about Abraham? We are told, uh, James quotes the same passage from Genesis 15 uh, that, 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 that Paul did. And Paul quotes that same passage. And he says that Abraham was justified by his faith. You remember Abraham, he was in the Ur of Chaldees and in the eastern section to the east of what we now know as present-day Israel, far off near Babylon, as it were, and that's where he was living. And God spoke to him one day and said, Depart, leave, go where I tell you to go. I'm going to make of your name a great nation, and I will give you a great seed Abraham, what did he do? He believed God and he left. He did what God commanded. Don't we need such faith, such obedience as Christians? If God's word says it, then I do it. Because without question, because who am I to question? And it's God who has given himself for me. So it's it's for me to simply do what God commands. If God has commanded it, it's my obligation to do it. Abraham, when God spoke to him, said, go. Abraham went. But the problem is, 25 years later, when he enjoyed the blessing of his son Isaac, what did God call him to do? Come and lay your son upon that altar and offer him back to me. What did Abraham do? Abraham did exactly what God said. He placed his son, he bound him up, he put him on that altar. And later on, Paul tells us that he believed in his heart that God had such power that he could even raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham was willing to give God whatever God asked. And at that point, God arrested his hand, provided a ram from the thicket, and said, I will provide the sacrifice, not just that ram, but the very Son of God. Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. When God commanded, Abraham believed. Abraham obeyed. In comparison to this is someone who would say, well, in interacting with James, well, some would say, well, you have the gift of insurmountable faith. I have the gift of works. You see how he says that? Someone may well say in verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith 
by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Are you, recognize, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Some want to divide the two, works and faith, and, and to, to, to illustrate them as particular gifts from God. Yes, there is a kind of faith that is of a particular gift from God that extends beyond the normal called-for faith of every believer. There are some people who have extraordinary gifting in faith. They understand the character of God, and they believe, and their faith is unshakable. Some of the rest of us ordinary folk, we, our faith struggles sometimes. It's up, it's down, waxes, wanes. But there are some who are uniquely and extraordinarily gifted. Others who abound in works. They, their lives seem to be just an endless progression of doing for God. And that's true, and... There is a false dichotomy made here by this speaker who is interacting with James hypothetically. Well, let's say let, these are things that are uh, that God gifts, and surely they're connected to what you're saying, James. And James says, "No, those are gifts. I'm talking about salvation. I'm talking about faith, which is justified by exemplary living and gifting." or beyond gifting. Well, he uses as a response to this the fact that demons believe certain things with all their hearts. They do. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's only one God, that he's designed to save the world through the death of his son, and they know far more than you and I do. And they tremble, and they stand in fear. But what do they do with that knowledge? Nothing. There is no repentance. There is no salvation for them. No one has died for their sake. They do not relent. They do not go back to God and confess their sins and beg forgiveness. They don't do any of it. They shudder. They know these things to be true. They shudder and it ends there. They go no further. But what did God say to Israel in Deuteronomy 6.5? I am the Lord your God. The Lord our God is, is one God, the people respond. And then he said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Affirmation, profession of faith is followed by consequence. Those demons, there's no consequence to their affirmation. It does nothing for them. How can you be sure that your faith is genuine. How can we be sure that truly we have peace with God? There must be some way of certainty. And so James will argue that from Rahab and Abraham. They were justified by their works. Faith promotes works. Works don't come by themselves. Faith needs works. By engaging in work, faith is brought to maturity. Faith precedes works. Faith is the first and basic reality and first Reality in Abraham's relationship with God. So, Abraham trusted God's promises. And a great nation was born through himself. Abraham was, he waited and God blessed him. He did not waver. He was justified in his faith. Do you know that the passage says that when James wants us to understand that he was justified in his faith when uh, 
or his faith, his true and saving faith, was justified when he offered Isaac on that altar. Well, he offered Isaac on that altar 25 years after he had already believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. James is not disagreeing. James is simply saying that when Abraham believed God, trusted God, and even when his faith took the activity of offering his son, it clarified that his faith was genuine, true, and real. God was trying his faith, burnishing his faith, as he will with all of us, and he will demonstrate that the faith that we have is genuine as gold. Abraham held nothing back from God. The life of faith holds nothing back from the God who emptied himself, humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. And so, my dear friends, this morning as we conclude, let's hear the words of Jesus, who agrees with James. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, as we've already read. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fail. For it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act in them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So James's question to us this morning, can that faith, can the kind of faith that you have this morning save you? If you have faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone for your salvation, and you trust in him with all of your being, if the Holy Spirit of God has been at work in your life, transforming you and converting you by his grace, surely, yes, your faith has saved you. Very much like the friends of the man lowered through the roof of the home in Capernaum in Mark 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. The faith of his friends was visible, physically active. Faith was working. Surely we lower our friend through the roof. Jesus will heal him. Maybe you've checked a box when you were checking into the hospital. You might share an Advent post on Facebook. You've had a picture of Jesus hanging in your home and To be honest, none of us really knows what he looked like. Maybe you wear a cross on your chest. Is your faith genuine? Do you profess to be a Christian, but really your profession isn't genuine, like a person who says they're a gourmet cook, but they really only ever eat out? Isn't that just social media information, which should be held to be dubious, like all social media information? Now, these only words without the corresponding power of God at work in us in our redeemed and converted life? Or do your statements really only reveal that you are a person who says things with your mouth, but there is no matching inward spiritual reality? There is no power of a God at work in you. 
no sincere devotion to obedience and to live for Christ. Well, the demons believe the same things you do, and they are not saved. What should that say about you? Faith in Jesus Christ cannot be constituted as a half-hearted devotion or a merely intellectual assent to the existence of Jesus. Abraham was tested for 25 years as he waited on the Lord. Rahab's obedience was a costly one that gave of herself, her family, all of her uh, her resources. Genuine faith will never look like a husband who has joined himself to his wife, who says that he loves her, but never gets in a car with her, never is shown anywhere with her, never shares the earnings of his labors, never sits down to eat with her, never kisses or shows physical love for her. Well, we would all say, every last one of us, he doesn't love his wife. He doesn't love his wife. We would be right in saying that. We must say the same of someone who says, I believe in Jesus. And yet their life is devoid of any observation of the word of God, belief and trust, transformation by the grace of God. And we need to ask, we need to say, well, that person doesn't seem like a believer. The person may not be a Christian. Actions speak louder than words. Just like 1 John 3.18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue only, but with actions and in truth. True and saving faith acts, and it believes the truth. And it bears fruit. If you have true and sincere faith in Jesus Christ, then truly, that is the kind of faith that we can say, yes, that kind of faith saves And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any should boast. But if God has so worked faith in your life, yes, you see that day by day, year by year, God is at work in you, renewing you, remaking you after his will. And little by little, modicum by modicum, you're growing in this commitment to live for him. True and saving faith is always connected with works. Works flow from the power of God in a redeemed life. Is your life redeemed? Is your faith genuine? God is not fooled. Many will approach the judgment seat of Christ and say, Lord, Lord, done great things in your name, and Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Let that never be true of you. But go to God this morning and press him. Oh, Lord, do not let my faith be inactive, but but prompt and press and push me to be productive in the Christian life. Let my faith be genuine and true and real. Let me produce as a good steward, double fold for what has been given to me. Oh, Lord, may God be pleased to work genuine faith in all of us and help us to walk in that newness of life that has been promised to all who believe truly and savingly in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.